As Big Little Lies dazzles you with twisty, dramatic coastlines along the Pacific, it will turn your stomach with its characters' warped marriages, zen affectations, and blind privilege. That's Matthew Gilbert of Boston Globe. We're talking Big Little Lies. That's right, two seasons of that show on HBO, seven episodes apiece. I watched 14 episodes of that for my viewing pleasure. In addition to that, it's the 25th anniversary of Casino. Let's dive into that Scorsese gangland epic. In addition to that, a Paul Schrader film that I love called Hardcore. It was on TCM at 2 in the morning, Saturday early morning. Thank God we have DVR. I recorded it. I watched it. I loved it. Hadn't seen it in 20 years. And a Humphrey Bogart movie, which Ben Mankiewicz, host of TCM, who does a phenomenal job, says it might be Bogart's best performance. It's a movie called In a Lonely Place. In addition to that, some Oscars news. Uh, some news about Aaron Sorkin's new film, A Mount Rushmore of Meryl Streep in honor of her 71st birthday, and just a few more Total Recalls to go, 2018 Oscars, the films from 2017. As always, thank you so much for your support. My man Joe tells me, listen, we had a huge, listen, a huge drastic decline in listenership because of the pandemic. I think we were probably down about 60 70%. We have now climbed back. So I think we're only down about 30%. So thank you to all of you. Obviously, I think things are reopening. People are going to the gym more. People are commuting more. They're listening to the podcast. So thank you so much. Spread the word. Let's get back to the levels that we were before this terrible uh, calamity affected us all. Go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to this uh, comment here from a history teacher. I've liked him since his ESPN days. His reviews are authentic, not over the top. He loves his work. It's a pleasure to listen to and recommend to any movie lover. Well, thank you, history teacher. I always loved history. I got to tell you, what a great subject. I know history majors. People say, what are you going to learn from history? Are you kidding? Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. Uh, let's dive in right away. Let's do a big little lies, okay? I had to get a little estrogen in my life, all right? Fair enough criticism. This podcast a little male-dominant between me and Joe. I got to get a little more uh, femininity. So you know what? Why not watch a show with some strong female leads? You got Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern. Fantastic. Uh, Reese plays the character of Madeline McKenzie, who's, you know, peppy and perky, as you expect, of a Reese Witherspoon-type character. Nicole is Celeste. She's quieter but also smoldering. Shailene plays Jane Chapman. That's Shailene Woodley. Remember her from The Descendants. Uh, she's young and harboring some dark secrets. There's Laura Dern playing Renata Klein, who is feisty and upwardly mobile. And then there's Zoe Kravitz. That's right, Lenny Kravitz's kid, Lisa Bonet, playing Bonnie Carlson, who is enigmatic to say the least. This is the Monterey Five. Monterey, California, all these parents have kids in school there. And they harbor a lot of big little lies. Good title, because, you know, when little lies fester becomes a big, big problem. There are some men in the show, but the women obviously take center stage. The men, though, one of them is Alexander Skarsgård. He plays Perry. That's Nicole Kidman's husband. He's absolutely terrifying, because, yeah, he's really handsome and muscular and looks like he's, you know, a dream husband. He's also is a spousal abuser. And the scenes, I got to warn you here, the physical abuse he unloads on Nicole Kidman are uh, not for the squeamish. It is terrifying to watch. There's also Adam Scott, who plays Ed McKenzie. He's the ineffectual second husband of Reese Witherspoon. You got James Tupper. Don't know his work, but I liked him. He's playing Nathan Carlson. He's this macho guy who's married to Zoe Kravitz. And then there's Jeffrey Nordling, who plays Gordon Klein, who's an absolute mess in season two. Nicole Kibben and Reese Weatherspoon were the executive producers of Big Little Lies. Clearly, that's something that they care about passionately. Uh, it's based on a book by Leanne Moriarty. Jean-Marc Vallée is the director, terrific director, Canadian. He's from Montreal. He's 57 years old. He directed Dallas Buyers Club, for which Matthew McConaughey won an Academy Award. He also directed Reese Witherspoon in Wild. So I figured, okay, that's the connection as to how he is a part of this. 
So based on Leanne Moriarty's bestseller, it's this dark comedy set here in California. And all these women are emotionally troubled. And as the story makes very clear, they're involved in a murder case investigation. And it's from the brilliant mind of David E. Kelly. That's right. If you know TV, you know the name David E. Kelly. Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, The Practice, uh, Boston Public, Boston Legal, and married to the great Michelle Pfeiffer since 1993. As Joe chimes in for the first time, Joe, take a guess at the net worth of David E. Kelly. Oh, boy. I will say 100 million even. I'll say 100 million. A decent guess, but you're shortchanging him by two and a half. A net worth of $250 million. So clearly, David oh, E. Kelly wow. is not screwing around. When he wants to do a project, he doesn't need to work for the rest of his life. He actually cares about this. So he adapted all seven episodes of season one. Valet directed all of them. And you get strong performances across the board. You get credible dialogue. And it's from a female perspective. It doesn't feel like a feminist show. It's not like Gloria Steinem wrote it. Uh, all these characters have flaws, but you root for them, you sympathize with them. You know, I love Reese Witherspoon because of Walk the Line, but I don't, I don't, I haven't watched Sweet Home Alabama, so I like her playing a character like this. So, like I said, is is pecky and and, and per, perky and and all those kinds of attributes you'd think of her in all sunshine and rainbows, but she's got some secrets of her own. She cheated on her husband. She's dealing with the fact that she's a theater director and she's dealing with the issues of her own uh, of her own infidelity. Nicole Gickham appears to have this wonderful marriage, couple of beautiful twin boys, but her husband is literally punching her in the stomach, slapping her around, horrific. And Shailene Woodley, well, how about her character? She's the young mom. You know what happened to her? Her son is the product of a rape, and she's not sure who the father is. So all these women are harboring terrible, terrible secrets, and this builds up to a big climax in the episode seven of season one, which by the way, my wife guessed who the rapist is because eventually it's going to find out who it is. So that's not great when you can guess who it is, but it is convincingly done and props to Valet, visually evocative. It's obviously in Monterey, California, which you've never been, 30,000 people. It's a beautiful seaside resort. You got sweeping vistas everywhere. Um, it's interesting. There's this one lonely bridge they show a lot, and it becomes this visual motif. I feel like it's almost a commentary on the characters. You know, you've got this beautiful landscape, and yet they're very empty beneath. So I thought The Big Little Lie, season one, which was heavily critically acclaimed. I mean, 16 Emmy nominations. I believe it won eight awards. Kidman won. Skarsgård won. Dern won. It was worth all of the hype. And that's why I'm giving the first season three and a half Maple Leafs. I particularly like the fact, you know, you know there's a murder investigation going on. So David E. Kelly, very smartly, in a very Shakespearean way, uses the Greek chorus. He interjects, he shows people talking to the police and these little quick snippets, you know, 30 seconds, like, oh man, Madeline versus Renata, that's when they got it on. I never really trusted Bonnie. Jane, to me, was a huge whatever. Like, And they just do these quick little vignettes, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. It makes you think about what's eventually going to unravel in this story, but I thought it was a smart device. Like I said, it's Shakespearean, the Greek chorus commenting on the action which is happening. Having said all that, season two is a dramatic come down. I mean, it's absolutely one note, and there's nothing much of interest with any of these characters. Madeline, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character, dealing with the consequences of the affair. Celeste, still dealing with the trauma of season one. Ton of flashbacks. Shailene, she's got a new boyfriend, just trying to reacclimate after that rape, after the information about her son. Renata, this is one of the few characters that's interesting. Laura Dern gets to chew a lot of scenery. Her husband pissed away all of their money, and now they have to file for bankruptcy. And in fact, he slept with the nanny which is a great scene in which they disclose that because the nanny says, all right, I want $60,000 past dues. They're like, yep, you'll get your money. She says, I also want another $120,000. And the guy overseeing the bankruptcy hearing says, why is that? And she says, uh, it was for tending to emotional needs and anxiety relief. 
I'm like, oh, that's how you describe an affair? Emotional needs and anxiety relief. So Laura Dern just tears into her husband. Obviously, she knows he's a scumbag. Later on, inexplicably, he's able to keep his train set. Like, he loves his toys, right? Silicon Valley, this guy's got a lot of money. He keeps his train set because he said he sold it to one of the auctioneers who said, I don't actually want to have it. I just want the value of it. So you take care of it. You keep it. And Laura Dern starts to lose it on him. She goes, oh, my God. I mean, you're going to play with these trains all day after what you did with the nanny. And he says, well, I can't play with her anymore. So Laura Dern turns into Barry Bond. She grabs a Louis, Louisville slugger, absolutely destroys his train set. It's one of the funniest scenes of season two, which, as I've already mentioned, is a disappointment. And the worst character is Zoe Kravitz's character. Her mom suffers a stroke. You barely know anything about the mom anyway, so you don't really care she's in the hospital. She's haunted by the consequences of her action. The men who were in the episodes early on, though, kind of disappeared. And the whole season just felt inert, with one exception. The great Meryl Streep, which is why we're dedicating the Mount Rushmore to her today. She shows up as Perry's mom looking for answers, and she is passive-aggressive in a brilliant fashion. The first scene she meets Reese Witherspoon, she comments how short she is, how she doesn't like short people. She just knew a girl back in school who was short. Later on, when she sees Reese, she goes, oh, you're wearing heels. She does it that great Meryl Streep passive-aggressive way. She's got this withering, cruel sense of humor. And she does not believe, does not trust the Monterey Five. She hires a, pri a private investigator, a lawyer, to snatch custody from the kids away from Celeste. And by the way, Nicole Kidsman's character, yes, she was the victim of abuse, but she also engaged in sadomasochistic behavior. Her husband would slap her. She'd slap him back. Then they'd have this raw, carnal lovemaking, which as she admits to her therapist, you know, I wasn't turned on by rape, but we had a sick, sick, disturbing relationship. You know, I was turned on by the violence. Having said that, season two, it just feels like it's stuck in neutral. Big Little Lies, season one is three and a half Maple Leafs. Season two, I'm giving one and a half Maple Leafs. So I guess collectively, Joe, two and a half Maple Leafs for this prestige project from HBO. And then I watched the first season and absolutely loved it. Um, but this, I didn't watch the second season, not because I didn't have interest, just because, you know, there's so many shows out there, things came up, and this seems like a show that kind of fell the way of, you know, I've, I've heard the same criticism with Killing Eve, with Jessica Beals, uh, the center of shows that had an extra season that probably shouldn't have. Having said that, season three hasn't been announced or officially set yet, even though the show finished in July of last year. Do you think there will be a season three? I hope not, Joe. It ends with this open-ended ending to season two, and yes, you would like to find out what happened, but more importantly, no, I would not like to find out what happened, because I think season two already had a big come down. I feel like the quality's already diminished. For example, Valet, who was the director for all of season one, didn't direct any of season two. David E. Kelly, who, at least according to the credits, wrote every episode of season one, co-wrote season two, which means maybe he was just mailing it in a little bit. Nicole Kidman publicly said Leanne Moriarty wrote the book, which they adapted season one. She wrote a novella, which was the material for season two. She goes, if she writes something for season three, if she writes a new book or something, then we'll adapt it. But I got to tell you, I, I, it, it is not something that I'd be looking forward to. All right. So what do you recommend season two for me then? Honestly, Meryl Streep is so good. I would almost say just watch the first couple episodes. I would never do this. I know a friend who, with 30 Rock would just fast for the entire season just to watch Alec Baldwin. Now, I think the whole <laughs> show is funny. But honestly, Meryl Streep is worth the, the, I don't know about worth the price of admission because you're already paying a lot for HBO. But for you, Joe, check out season two, at least the first one, just to get a taste of Meryl Streep because she is fantastic. All right. I will do that for sure. All right. Moving on. I want to talk about this movie, Hardcore. 
which is fantastic. Only Paul Schrader, the great Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, which I watched again for the 20th time. You know, anytime you watch one of your favorite movies again, you always learn something new. I live in Hohokus, New Jersey, which is Bergen County. When Travis is talking to the Fed, uh, Palantine is having his rally. And he's talking to the Secret Service guy, and he asks him his address, and Travis gives him a fake address. He says, 175 Hopper Avenue, Fairlawn, New Jersey. I give him a fist pump. I'm like, yes, Fairlawn, New Jersey, 10 minutes away from my house. It's great. Uh, Taxi Driver, though, of course, is a script that Paul Schrader wrote. He also wrote and directed Affliction uh, and many other great films. First performance came out a few years ago, got rave reviews. Ethan Hawke, best performance of his career. Schrader finally got nominated for Best Original Screenplay, his first Oscar nomination. Hardcore is a movie that came out in 1979. Further belief why I think 1970s movies are the best, because only he can intertwine faith and amorality. George C. Scott, who won an Oscar for Patton, we recently reviewed The Hospital here on Cinephile. He plays a guy from Michigan. Paul Schrader is from Michigan. He's a Dutch Calvinist. Paul Schrader's family was Dutch Calvinist, very religious. George C. Scott's daughter goes missing, and so he has got to go find her. What happened to her after this rally? Peter Boyle. Also from Taxi Driver, everybody loves Raymond, of course, plays a pirate investigator. He shows up. He tells George C. Scott, come with me. I got something to show you. He takes him to a porn theater. He goes, it's closed, but I opened it for an hour. He shows him an eight millimeter video in which George C. Scott sees his daughter in an adult film. That scene where he watches it, the way he just says, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. I mean, just vicious how enraged he is. And as he says to Peter Boyle, you enjoyed showing this to me, you sick person. Scott ends up going on a quest, but unlike Frodo and Bilbo Baggins, this is a journey. This is a trip through the smut of Los Angeles. He goes to strip clubs, to peep shows, where you pay five bucks for two minutes and the divider goes up. Which, by the way, in today's COVID-19 era, maybe the way people have to go to gentlemen's clubs. You pay five bucks, the divider goes up, you have a conversation, the, the divider goes down. He goes to massage parlors. Most memorably, he goes to adult films to try to find out what happened to his daughter. Because the movie that the guy showed him, that Boyle showed him, isn't like a true pornographic film. It's just like a video. So how's he going to find her? And Peter Boyle, meantime, he's a pig as well. He goes to one of these porn sets. And he wants to like look in there. And like, as the guy says to him, oh, this girl, it'll grow a hair on your head. Peter Boyle, obviously very bald. George C. Scott then meets a porn producer. After realizing his method is not working, he's literally going to these massage parlors, taking a picture of his daughter going, have you seen this girl? Well, how the hell are you going to find her? Okay, you know what? Go inside this, right? Be a little more insidious. He meets a porn producer, this pig who tells him about why he does it, how successful he's been. So George C. Scott gets a toupee, a mustache, and a tight shirt. And he starts casting this film in his hotel. He brings in this one black guy who says, I can come 10 times a day. I can stay hard for two hours. I've got nine inches. And George C. Scott says, no, thank you. Because, of course, he's looking for the guy who was in the video with his daughter. And then, sure enough, he meets a guy who was in the porn with his daughter. And when he says, have you seen this girl, the guy reacts terribly. He says, I'm not working out with that freak. You know, what she did to me, what she was, she's just a gross person. And George C. Scott can't control his rage. He grabs this giant lamp and just beats this guy over the head. Ends up putting him in the shower and says, all right, where is she? Where's the last time you saw her? He gives him, he gives him a name of, of a girl. He goes and meets this girl who's a friend of his daughter's, apparently in this adult film industry. And she agrees to help him. So now he's got this, this girl helping him, not a hooker per se, but definitely someone who's a, a part of the sex trade. And he's this religious guy from Michigan. They end up having this conversation, which I'm telling you, in 1979, incredibly prescient. She says to him, you think I just suck off guys all day? You think I'm just some sort of animal? And she, he says, listen, you know nothing about me. I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
You know, I'm a Dutch Calvinist. I believe in redemption. I believe my life is going to be redeemed one day. I believe in the afterlife. I don't care about New York or Los Angeles. I don't care about who's on Johnny Carson. And she says, what do you care about? He goes, finding my daughter. And I said, think about today. Think about how divided this country is, right? The, the liberal uh, strongholds of New York and Los Angeles. And then what happens in the Midwest and the South where there's differing opinions. And I said, that's amazing. In 1979, this guy's given a speech saying, I don't care about New York and Los Angeles. And you could still find a guy who's a Dutch Calvinist in Grand Rapids, Michigan, saying the exact same thing. Uh, from there, George C. Scott ends up trying to find his daughter. This woman is now helping him, his accomplice. The ending is definitely owing a lot to Taxi Driver, which was only three years previous. He ends up going to find out this guy, Todd. Th this part goes like really twisted. He ends up meeting this guy, Todd, who was ostensibly the producer of the pornographic film which his daughter was in. And he says, there's this guy, Rattan, you got to meet. Rattan is this producer of like truly vile films. George C. Scott pays 100 bucks to go watch this movie. 100 bucks back in 1979. He watches the video, and in the video, a guy stabs a woman to death. He's like, oh my God. He's like, I've got to find my daughter before she's in a video produced by this guy, Rattan, who ends up murdering her. He goes to a strip club, he finds Rattan, blah, 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 blah. He ends up trying to reconcile with his daughter. And by the way, the script owes a lot to the searchers. If you thought Taxi Driver was a little bit like the searchers, John Wayne, let's go home, Ginny. Well, same thing. Here, when he sees his daughter, he's like, come on, like, take me. And she says, don't touch me, you cocksucker. Think about that. This father's done, like, he spent so much money. He's, like, sacrificed so much dealing with this vile, lurid environment. That's how she treats him. It's a hell of a movie. I texted Ben Mankiewicz afterwards. I said, happy Father's Day. Thanks so much for showing hardcore. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. And uh, let me read what Mank texted me back. He said, I wish I'd formally introduced it. I wonder if we've had it hosted before. And I said, I'm telling you, it's a hell of a movie. It's definitely not for all tastes. Uh, but it's certainly an unforgettable movie. My man Scott Rogowski saw it. I think it's on the Criterion channel. He mentioned it to me like a month ago. And I go, okay, I haven't seen it in like 20 years. I definitely got to see this movie again. Hardcore is not for all, but I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. Joe, it's one of those gems from the 70s. I had not heard of it until you, you told me about it, but I was doing some research on it, and I just want to know if this kind of came out in the movie or if you noticed it at all. According to IMDb, George C. Scott and Paul Schrader didn't get along, so much so that um, Scott refused to come out of his trailer and threatened to quit the film. He only agreed to come out after he made Schrader promise that he would never direct another movie again. <laughs> Which, obviously, he went back on his promise, but I oh. thought it was the funniest thing, yeah. Joe, that is an incredible tidbit. I had no idea. I did think while watching the film, like, Schrader's sensibilities probably don't jive with George C. Scott. Like, this is such a personal film. Like, only, only Paul Schrader is going to write a movie about a guy who's discovering his daughter's become a porn actress, and this guy's a Calvinist minister. But I... That's a, that's a great tidbit. That may be the best research you've ever given me. As far as reviews, uh, <laughs> Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, hardcore, flawed, and uneven contains moments of pure revelation. And Janet Maslin, who is a great film critic for the New York Times, there's a lot of the searchers in the story of this strict, cruel, self-denying man trying to find a woman who's fallen into odious circumstances. From there, we move to In a Lonely Place, this Humphrey Bogart film. Again, TCM aired it at midnight, Saturday early morning. Uh, back to my buddy Ben Mankiewicz. In his introduction, he said, I think it's Bogart's best performance, which I texted him to. He said, listen, Casablanca is the best movie. There's no real argument there, but In a Lonely Place and The Harder They Fall are the two best performances. They're two of my favorite performances from anyone. You say, wow, I got to watch In a Lonely Place. What's this movie about? Screenwriter Dixon Steele, faced with the odious task of scripting a trashy bestseller, has hatchet girl Mildred Atkinson tell him the story in her own words. Later that night, Mildred is murdered, and Steele is a prime suspect. 
His record of belligerence when angry and his macabre sense of humor tell against him. Fortunately, lovely neighbor Laurel Gray gives him an alibi. Laurel proves to be just what Steele needs, and their friendship ripens into love. Will suspicion, doubt, and Steele's inner demons come between them? I tell you, man, bogey, cynical, world-weary screenwriter. As he says sardonically to his friend who's a cop investigating him, I've been killing people for years, dot, 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 in pictures. 38 minutes in, he recreates how the murder may have gone. It's creepy and frightening to see the darkness overcome his visage. He's a man filled with rage. And at one point, he chokes Gloria Graham. And it's nothing short of terrifying. This is a film from director Nicholas Ray, famously made Rebel, Rebel Without a Cause, and Gloria Graham, who was his real-life paramour. In fact, they were separated during the film and did not tell Bogey because they didn't want to throw him off. They, by the way, were no longer an item. But the director revealed his real personal obsessions in his work. And there's one passage of dialogue, which is beautiful. Bogart's talking about how he wrote something, how he feels about a woman. He said, I was born when I met her. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks in between. How good is that? I was born when I met her. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks in between. Use that as poetry on your uh, loved one next time. Peter Bradshaw, Guardian. Humphrey Bogart's world weariness and romanticism take on something brutal and misogynist in this 1950 noir masterpiece directed by Nicholas Ray. And it's a marvelous performance by Gloria Graham. One more from... uh, Richard Brody from New Yorker. Few movies suggest such a forthright flaying of their director's soul. And Dave Keir of Chicago Reader, it's a breathtaking work and a key citation in the case for confession as suitable material for art. In a lonely place. If you love Bogart, Joe, you got to check this out. Hold on, I'm just writing that down. Born when I met you. <laughs> uh, I got a few. I have to send this to a few X's later today. Um, I will definitely check this movie out. I had, this is another one I hadn't heard about until he recommended it, but if this is considered one of his best roles or bo- role that he was born to play, considering he was in the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, um, I will definitely check it out. Oh, fantastic. Last one is a movie that I'm sure Joe and I have seen many times, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I hadn't seen it in over a decade, and that is... Casino, 25th anniversary of the Scorsese film. In early 1970s, Las Vegas low-level mobster Sam Ace Rothstein, played by Robert De Niro, gets tapped by his bosses to head the Tangiers Casino. He's got problems, though, that loose cannon enforcer Nikki Santoro, played by Joe Pesci, his hustler wife Ginger, Sharon Stone, and her Connors ex, Lester Diamond. Scorsese directing this adaptation of Nicholas Pileggi's book. It's interesting, when the movie came out, I think it got some mixed reviews because people said, wow, how repetitive is this? I just watched Goodfellas, which is one of the best films of Marty's career, one of the best films of the 90s. And now five years later, the gang's back again? Really? Okay, so it's De Niro playing the lead. Yeah, Joe Pesci's playing another crazy guy. This guy's a little more crazy because he puts a guy's head in his vice and says, Charlie M? For Charlie M, you did this? The difference is Sharon Stone, of course, because you go from Lorraine Bracco's character in Goodfellas. All right, Sharon Stone, a lot more histrionics. She's the only one who really broke through for the movie on a critical level. She was nominated for Best Actress for an Academy Award, and she really is the one, like I said, who got recognition. Also in the supporting cast, you got really great character actors like Don Rickles, Alan King, Kevin Pollack, Dick Smothers, Frank Vincent. Frank Vincent, who Pesci slammed a car door on in Raging Bull, who in Goodfellas, he beat him and stabbed him to death. Well, this time in Casino, Frank Vincent gets his comeuppance. He gets to beat Joe Pesci with a bat. He beats his brother to death. It's one of the most vicious mob scenes ever. My point is this. I hadn't seen it in a long time. At the time, I liked it a lot, but I did think it was repetitive because of Goodfellas. But when you remove the recency bias, if you just, you know, I haven't seen Goodfellas in a while and you watch Casino on its own merit, it is, I think, a great film. Yeah, it's two hours and 50 minutes. Yeah, it's long. Okay, I got that. But the first hour in particular, the way that 
De Niro, a heavily voiceover narration. Like, you look at Scorsese, you know, he's been a lot of documentaries. Joe's the music guy here. You know, he loves Bob Dylan, No Direction Home. Scorsese directed that. Shine a Light, Rolling Stones documentary. Scorsese directed that. The Last Waltz about the band. Scorsese directed that. The first hour of this feels like a documentary. It's like De Niro's explaining to you how Las Vegas works. And it's got this real energy to it. A lot of Louis Prima music. You know, great production design. Robert Richardson, cinematographer. Although, damn you, Barry Sonnenfeld. There's a lot of panning in this movie. And for Barry, I blame that. Because at one point, I'm like, God, that camera is moving a lot. There's a lot of panning in this. But there's no doubt Casino has a lot of restless energy to it. Yes, it's violent. But I think if you're looking at all-time mob movies, there's no doubt it should be, you know, among the list and among those that people enjoy. As I mentioned, though, the reviews were up and down. Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, so long as Casino stays focused on the excesses of language, of violence, of ambition, and the lifestyles of the rich and infamous, it remains a smart, knowing, if often repetitive, spectacle. Hal Hinson of Washington Post, Scorsese may be flailing here, but Scorsese flailing is more formidable than most directors at the top of their form. I'm giving a hardcore for Maple Leafs. I'm giving in a lonely place for Maple Leafs. Yeah, Casino's a little long, but there's some memorable sequences. When Pesci confronts De Niro in the desert, and you see that shot of the car going by, the reflection in De Niro's glasses, and the way Pesci absolutely attacks him. How about the scene where Pesci's insulting the casino dealer, saying, take this card and pound it up your ass, and then beats up on Don Rickles, a poor guy. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. I know it's not perfect. I know it's not good, fellas. But I'm telling you, Joe, if you watch Casino in a vacuum, it's awfully good. I love Casino. I haven't seen this movie in a few years. Love Don Rickles in it. Sharon Stone is amazing. Kevin Pollack. Um, but you're right. The movie is, is you know, 250. But the way that it's paced, I don't think it feels that long at all. I have a quick question for you, though. In September of last year, we did our Mount Rushmore of Scorsese films. And you had Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. And then The Irishman at number four. I want to ask you, now that you've had a few months to sit on The Irishman, would you still put that in your top four Scorsese movies? That's interesting, Joe. I, you know, I might sub in Mean Streets. I just feel like i got to get Mean Streets in there somehow. I mean, as much as I you, love The you Irishman. You put that at so. number five. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll flip-flop. Maybe I'll put The Irishman at five, and I'll put Mean Streets at four. So that's probably the move that I would make. But it, it's interesting. You talk to some people. My, I mean, my wife thinks Casino is absolutely in her Mount Rushmore Scorsese movies. Uh, there's people like, like Cabby loves that movie. I mean, I, I have friends who's the casino is outstanding. So it's always funny. You'll meet people who say, yeah, Goodfellas is great, but I actually prefer a casino. The, the, it's very operatic, right? The music and the, I mean, they've had that opening sequence. De Niro starts his car and he gets bombed out of there and you've got this like image of him flying all over the place. I mean, it's, it's definitely got a lot of style to it, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. And I even think compared to the, I think the glitz and glamour of Vegas is is more conducive to that too. I mean, you have a talent like Scorsese pulling it off, but with Goodfellas, it's much more um, industrious. Maybe that's the word for it. A little bit more gritty while this is just very, you know, it's, it's Vegas. It's Las Vegas. And he does a great job of showcasing that. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of glitz and glamour and it's colorful and it's tacky and and there's also, as always with these mob movies, some real humor. The scene where De Niro is incensed at the fact there's no blueberry muffins in his muffin, and there's not an equal amount, <laughs> and goes to the guy in the back, I want an equal amount of blueberry muffins. I mean, it's, it's a funny scene. And you can see how a guy like this would operate, right? He's a great gambler, but he takes no joy in it. He just, he knows the angles, and he's smart, but there's, there's no joy in his work. And uh, clearly, at least the people around him have to pay the price for all of that. All right, that is Casino. Coming up next, some entertainment news, plus the Mount Rushmore Meryl Streep movies. Don't go anywhere. Here on Cinephile. When you need meal 
real-time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, as a result of the global pandemic, the 93 Academy Awards have been pushed back. That's right, February 28th for the Oscars. No, April 25th. Here's what's actually really important. Right now, the window is January 1, 2020 to December 31st of this year, right? Well, now it's been extended to February 28th. So everybody out there who's saying, well, hang on, there's no new movies coming out with some exceptions. Okay, Defy Bloods on Netflix. Ben Affleck got the way back in March. Like, is Ben Affleck going to win Best Actor because there's just no movies coming out? No, 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 no. AMC's opening theaters in mid-July. You're going to see a lot of movies released August to December. And now they've extended that window now to February of next year for the Oscars of next year. And obviously, this is a, a unique circumstance. But the Oscars have been delayed three times before. L.A. flooding in 1938, the assassination of Dr. King in 68, and the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan back in 1981. So this is not entirely, like I said, unprecedented. Also, some news here, the film called Armageddon Time. How about this cast? Robert De Niro, Oscar Isaac, Anne Hathaway, Donald Sutherland are joining Kate Blanchett in this period drama. Uh, James Gray is directing the movie. Coming-of-age story explores friendship and loyalty against the backdrop of America poised to elect Ronald Reagan as president. Look forward to that film. And this one I can't wait to watch. The Trial of the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin's new film. Netflix right now is circling the wagons. Paramount was going to release it, limited release, September 25th, and go wide October 16th. Well, now Netflix might swoop in. They got to get it out. They're hoping before the presidential election in November. But how about this cast? Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Jeremy Strong from Succession, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Frank Langella, William Hurt, Michael Keaton, Mark Rylance. Wow, Sorkin assembled quite a cast. Social Network, A Few Good Men, The West Wing. He's directed Molly's Game. He wrote and directed this. Of course, won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay of the Social Network. If you're wondering what the story is, the Chicago 7 is a group of seven activists who were charged by the federal government with conspiracy and setting to riot and other charges stemming from anti-Vietnam War protests that broke out during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Intended as peaceful protests, they instead devolved into a violent clash of police and the National Guard. The organizers of the protests included Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. Their trial was one of the most notorious in history. Sign me up, Joe. I can't wait to watch this Aaron Sorkin film. How about that cast? Oh, the cast is incredible. And Aaron Sorkin, is I, I, I just like him as a writer, whether it was The West Ring, uh, I think it was The Newsroom. I really enjoyed that, too. But, you know, just any original content coming out during this year, I'm all for. So Netflix, just keep keep adding these movies on because I will be there to watch. Yeah, I'm hoping it comes out in theaters in September and October. But if not, if Netflix is the only place it's going to be because theaters are closed because of the second wave, who knows? Hey, I'm all for it. All right. Uh, Mount Rushmore is next. Mount Rushmore. Uh, in honor of Meryl Streep's 71st birthday, that's right, we are doing the greatest films of Meryl Streep. Wow, what an actress, right? 
more nominations you can count. 21 Academy Award nominations. She has won three Academy Awards. At second most by Catherine Hepburn with four. She can do it all, right? She can do great accents. She can do all different characters. She's funny. She's smart. She's dramatic. So how on earth are you going to pick the best films of her entire career? Well, we're going to give it a shot. Sophie's Choice, I'm going to go with number one. Think about that. If you know what Sophie's Choice is, she has to pick one of her kids who's going to die. That's how hard that movie is. Sophie's Choice is one of those performances you never forget. She plays this Polish woman. I mean, it's, it's absolutely unforgettable. That's one for me. Since I don't want to go heavy all the way through... Um, I do want to try to find some spots for some comedy. So I'm hoping Joe's going to include adaptation perhaps, but maybe even uh, something along those lines. But honestly, it gets tricky after that because there's so much drama. So I'm just going to keep it going with the dramas first and I'll try to find a comedy. Sophie's Choice is in, okay? Kramer versus Kramer is in. Her and, and Dustin Hoffman, one of the great divorce movies of all time. She won an Academy Award. She's awesome. The scene where she says, no, no, I'm the boy's mother. I should look after him. Very, very powerful. I'm not going to include The Deer Hunter, although I'd like to. Out of Africa, yep, it won Best Picture, no. I just watched Ironweed. She's very good. I'm not going to include it. Defending Your Life, which is a great comedy. Yes, I love Albert Brooks. I'm not going to include it. Bridges of Madison County, very, very good. Not going to include it. I'm going to go with One True Thing. For a woman always throwing like accents and doing different characters, this was about a mom battling cancer. It was very poignant and very, um, I think, you know, big-hearted performance from her. So one true thing I'm throwing in there as well. And after this, you know, I I'm torn between The Devil Wears Prada, Mama Mia. Heck, she's in Fantastic Mr. Fox. But as I told you recently, I love Doubt. And what the hell? I know it's a dramatic film, but honestly, there's some dark comedy in there as well. Shout out to Florence Foster Jenkins, which obviously has some real funny moments as well. She plays a singer who doesn't realize she's a terrible singer. Her husband, Hugh Grant, enables her. But I'm going to go with Doubt. So that is uh, indeed my Mount Rushmore. Sophie's Choice, One True Thing, Kramer versus Kramer, and Doubt. Joe, so many choices. Too, too many choices. Uh, I, I had to take a longer moment than I normally do to prepare for this Mount Rushmore just because it, how, how can you choose? But you're right. I will agree with you. Sophie's Choice has to be number one. And I will throw on Kramer versus Kramer as well. And then from there, you know what? I was going to do Devil's Wear Prada, but I, I am going to do Adaptation where she plays a Susan Orlean. I know she took a pay cut to do that movie and she was rewarded with a, a Academy Award nomination that year. So I'll do Adaptation. And then for my last one, I'm going to go, it was tough, but I'll go with Silkwood where she uh, is a conspiracy movie. It was based on uh, true events that happened where she is trying to whistleblow some um, unsavory practices at the plant that she's working at, the nuclear plant that she's working at. And so I'll, I'll pick that as my number four. I have Silkwood, Adaptation, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Sophie's Choice. Wow, I've never seen Silkwood. I've heard of it. I know she plays Karen Silkwood, but I'm going to check that out. Good stuff by Joe. Going against the grain there. Listen, Music of the Heart, Dancing at Lunasa, Marvin's Room. There's so many great movies of Meryl Streep. All right, let's squeeze in a little Total Recall before we say goodbye. Total Recall. All right, Total Recall. We're doing 2018 Oscars. That's right, the films from 2017. Best picture was The Polarizing, The Shape of Water. I love that film. I was happy it won, but Joe, what else was nominated? Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, 
Phantom Thread, The Post, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Man, what a what, this was a really strong year. Am I telling you or what? God, Dunkirk, I think, is a spectacular war film. Get out. Some would say that's the best movie of that year. It's commentary on racial politics and how darkly funny it is. And it's a horror movie. I mean, you're mixing genres all over the place, Jordan Peele. Lady Bird, I was stunned what a good drama it was. I said, I'm not going to relate to this mother-daughter story. And I thought it was beautiful. I was choked up by a, a Laurie Metcalf's performance. Three billboards. God, okay, I want to see it's between three billboards and the shape of water for me. But God, I love Phantom Thread. Man, this is a tough one. All right, I'm going to go three billboards for best picture, but God, number two would be Phantom Thread. Number three would be Shape of Water. As Joe and I have talked about before, we love Guillermo del Toro, and he probably should have won something for Pan's Labyrinth. So I would, again, to reiterate, I was very happy it won best picture because I did love the movie, but I would probably go with three billboards. I think it's more rewatchable. I've seen three billboards at least two or three times. I love the performances. It's got a great script, Malcolm and Dell. I've also seen Phantom Thread a couple of times, and I swoon over the costume design and the music and Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis. This is awfully tough, Joe, but I'm going to go with three billboards. It is super, super tough. I, I'm i going to go with Lady Bird. I'm going to go with Lady Bird. Really love that movie. I think Greta Gerwig should have been nominated last uh, for these past Oscars. And also, like I've mentioned before on the podcast, you know, it, it's very much a Sacramento movie, but they don't make reference to it. So I'll go with Lady Bird for sure. It's a great choice, man. I, that's the best Sacramento movie ever. And, you know, you think of how many movies have been done, coming of age story, family dysfunction, blah, blah, blah. But that movie nails it. I mean, it feels fresh and original and a great use of the Dave Matthews band crash into me. Best director was <laughs> uh, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Who else was nominated? Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Ladyburg, and Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread. Okay, so if we're going, you know, lifetime achievement here, I mean, I've got three right in the mix, because if we're just going to go on achievement alone, what Peele did with Get Out was amazing. Greta Gerwig and Ladybird, again, terrific movie, but I might just have to go career achievement. So Del Toro probably should have won for Pan's Labyrinth, did not. P.T. Anderson should have won for Magnolia or Boogie Nights, did not. And Nolan should have won for Memento or Inception or Dark Knight, you name it. So, God, pick one of those three. Guillermo Del Toro, Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't think any of these movies, by the way, are their best movies, but they're all great directors. I'll go with P.T. Anderson because he's a personal favorite of mine. And I thought Phantom Thread was a really nice twist on all those costume dramas of the past. And you think it's one of these Merchant Ivory movies and it ends up being this really dark love story about a guy who likes getting sick and he eats mushrooms. I mean, there's, there's stuff happening all over the place. So, I don't think it's best, but I think he's a brilliant director. And this, by the way, showed his range. Think about Boogie Nights, Magnolia, The Master, and then this guy tosses up Phantom Thread. Like, how talented is he? I'll go with P.T. Anderson, Joe. That's a great choice, but I will go with Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk. Though I will say I'm in the minority rare camp where I just thought Shape of Water was... I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was best, you know, picture winner worthy, but I'll, I'll definitely go with Dunkirk. Just cinematically, what Nolan was able to do with that it was incredible. I, I am with you, man. If you're looking at a visual spectacle alone, I watched Dunkirk 70 millimeter in Connecticut. It was incredible. And the way he's balancing like three different battles, the cutting back and forth, land, sea, water. I, I have no quibbles at all with your Christopher Nolan selection. Best actor was Gary Oldman for Darkest Hours, Winston Churchill. Who else was nominated? Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name, Daniel Day-Lewis, Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel, Esquire. Denzel's one of our finest actors. I did not think Roman J. Israel was a particularly good movie at all. I thought his performance was different, certainly. Put on a bunch of weights, got a wig, you know, 70s era, et cetera. But I, God, no one's ever going to say, hey, man, if you watch Roman J. Israel lately, like, that's not one that's going to be remembered. 
I'm torn between Kaluuya and Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, Oldman's never won, so I get the career achievement part. And yes, he didn't have a throw of Winston Churchill. But Churchill, by the way, just when I learned the history of this guy, I mean, terrible racist. They didn't show any of that stuff in the movie. So I found some of the uh, glamorizing of him a little tough to swallow. Shallow is a good actor, and that is a, a nice same-sex romance. He showed his range. He took some shots in there. I kind of got to go with Kaluuya, but honestly, I'm going to go with DDL. I know, maybe it's a cheat. The guy's already won three Best Actor Oscars, but honestly, his character, Reynolds Woodcock, a man who's obsessive about his work, who has this pain when his work leaves him, this tortured romance. I mean, he said this is going to be his last movie. So if it's his last movie, what the hell? Fourth Oscar for DDL. I'll agree with you. I'll go with, uh, DDL as well, especially if it is his last movie. It's a tough category, though, because I could easily go with Timothy Chalamet, I think, but I've never seen The Darkest Hour before, so I can't speak on Gary Oldman's performance in that, but I heard it's pretty good. Yeah, his performance is good. The movie, I thought, was a little stilted. Best actress, I'll get this out of the way. Absolutely, Frances McDormand, one of the best performances ever. Three billboards that said Ebbing, Missouri. A woman who's trying to find out who murdered her daughter, who raped her daughter. She played the character like John Wayne. It's one of her best performances, and that's saying a lot because she also gave us Fargo. I was so happy when she won. Who else was nominated? Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, Cersei Ronan for Lady Bird, and Meryl Streep, The Post. How about this? When I say Meryl Streep was the worst nominee of those five, that's how strong this category is. Margot Robbie, I, Tanya be my number two choice. Saoirse Ronan probably be my third choice. Lady Bird, my fourth choice be Sally Hawkins. Any of those four women widely deserving of an Academy Award. I thought Streep's performance... Uh, was not particularly notable as Catherine Graham. I don't want to say she got nominated just because she's Meryl Streep, but The Post, it was definitely not a film that I thought cut through the way we were expecting it to. So, uh, yeah, I'll go with Frances, but God, Margot Robbie, I love Daitanya. It's tough. If you're going to go with Frances McDormand, who was just fantastic in Three Billboards, I will go with Margot Robbie. For Daitanya, I thought she was great in that, but she does this little thing where... Her character's aging throughout the movie, and she changes her voice to add more vocal fry from when she's a teenager to, you know, when she's being interviewed at the end of the movie as an older person. And it's those subtle little accents that I really appreciate about that role. So Margot Robbie, for sure. Best Supporting Actor. Again, lots of great worthy nominees. I'm going to go with Sam Rockwell, though. I thought he really tore into Malcolm McDowell's dialogue so well, playing this racist character who ends up being not necessarily a heart of gold, but a guy who's got some more humanity and decency than you'd expect. And props to Woody Harrelson, who was also nominated for three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, playing Chief Willoughby. I mean, this whole category is great. I'm glad Rockwell won. I would have gone with him. Who else was nominated, Joe? Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project. Woody Harrelson, Three Billboards. Richard Jenkins, The Shape of Water, and Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World. Plummer coming at the last minute to rescue that movie to replace Kevin Spacey. A good achievement from a great Canadian actor. I've mentioned before my love for Richard Jenkins. I'm so happy he got nominated and reflective of how good he is in The Shape of Water. But again, Rockwell's the choice. And by the way, Defoe was the frontrunner to win, and then Rockwell ended up winning. Defoe, I would have been happy to win because, God, I've had him previously on Cinephile. Take a listen to that interview. He's about as generous as it gets in talking about his career. You know, Platoon. He's made a lot of movies of Paul Schrader, but I will go with Sam Rockwell. I will agree with you. I'll go. I'll agree with the Academy too. Sam Rockwell killed it in that movie. He's he's awesome. So I will go with Sam Rockwell. Best supporting actress is Allison Janney for I Tanya. She's so funny as Lavana Golden. As Margot Robbie told me on Cinephile again, previous interview, check it out. She said it's like laughing in church. That's the way Allison Janney plays this monstrous mom who's also devilishly funny. She won. Who else was nominated? Mary J. Blige for Mudbound. Leslie Manville, Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf, Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer, The Shape of Water. 
As much as I love Janny, as much as I love Phantom Thread, and Manville, by the way, is really good as a sister, giving it back to DDL in one scene, and Octavia Spencer uh, being a really sweet, soulful presence in the shape of water, I am going to go with um, Lori Metcalf. The scene after she drops her daughter off, and she's trying to contain all that emotion, starts fighting back tears, that's as good as screen acting gets. I loved her performance in Lady Bird. I actually thought she was going to be a lock to win, and Allison Janney started to win the Critics' Choice Awards and ended up winning the Oscar. But I thought Metcalf and Lady Bird, phenomenal, Joe. I thought she was amazing, too. I'll, I will go with Allison Janney. I thought she was incredible in Itania, but you're right. Laurie Metcalf just, uh, the movie wouldn't be the same without her, so I can I, I agree with that, too. Two more to go. Best original screenplay, Get Out, Jordan Peele. I'm glad Get Out won something because it was such an original, innovative film, but I don't think it should have won. Who else was nominated? The Big Sick. Emily V. Gordon, Kamel Nanjiani, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, the Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro, and Vanessa Taylor, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Martin McDonough. I'll go with Martin McDonough, man. He's a lot like David Mamet. He takes these nasty characters, uh, the poetry out of profanity. They seem vile, but he ends up finding a way to root for them. Some memorable dialogue. I'm going to go with best original screenplay, Martin McDonough. All right, I will go with Get Out. I'll agree with the Academy um, because it is kind of genre-bending. I appreciate that. But shout-out to The Big Sick. That was a really cute, good romantic comedy as well. Yeah, I love seeing Kamel Nanjiani getting recognition there. And best adaptive screenplay was Call Me By Your Name, James Ivory. I don't think it should have won. Who else was nominated? The Disaster Artist, Logan, Molly's Game, and Mudbound. What a strong year, man. The Disaster Artist is really yeah. funny. One of James Franco's best performances. I read the book. My man Rick Passmore loves it. I'm going to go with Logan. Comic book movies never get recognized, but I thought that was like unforgiven for superhero movies. A great script co-written by James Mangold. It's one of my favorite superhero movies. I thought Jacqueline was amazing as Wolverine. I wish Logan had won Best Adaptive Screenplay. You, you and I are in agreement. I really, really loved it. And then uh, I watched it in color. Then I watched the quote-unquote noir version, and yes. I, I think I liked the black and white version better, too. Um, so, yeah, I'll go with Logan for sure. Good stuff, Joe. The noir version is incredible. All right, that is Total Recall. Only a couple more Total Recalls to go. Joe's got a big wedding to get to for his brother, so he'll be hitting the road soon. We'll be back next time here on Cinephile. Once again, subscribe, rate, and review. Support us on Twitter, CinephilePod, or individually, Adnan Esper. And I'll see you at the movies. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.